thanks for downloading Beyond the Hall of Winthrop. Hong Kong boasts a rich history. Its strategic location and deep coastal waters have helped it grow from a humble fishing port into a global economic powerhouse. But as COVID outbreaks disrupt trade, how will Hong Kong adapt? Join Adam Applegate along with our panel of UW alumni for a discussion about the strengths and prospects of Hong Kong's economic growth. Hi everyone, welcome to today's webinar. My name is Kieran Hargraves and I'm the Director of Alumni and Community Engagement here at UWA and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here today. It is the tradition of the University of Western Australia to acknowledge the custodians and traditional owners of the land on which our campuses are located. At the main campus, Crawley, the University acknowledges the Wajak Noongar people as its traditional owners of the land. The Wajak Noongar remain the spiritual and cult cultural custodians of their land and continue to practice their values, languages, beliefs and knowledge. Strength, prospects and thought leadership are synonymous with UWA. Our alumni network in Hong Kong, led by Ricky Mui, is a prime example of continually connecting students, researchers, alumni in industry to the university. Today's webinar is an example of connecting the alumni with the university and highlighting the impact graduates are making in Hong Kong and across the globe, and I truly hope you find it valuable. I'll now turn things over to Hong Kong committee member, Adam Applegate, who'll guide today's conversation. Over to you, Adam. Thanks, Kieran. Um, so welcome everybody. I'm part of the, the UWA Alumni Committee um, in Hong Kong, along with uh, Ricky, Jackie, Bridget, Peter, Andrew and Handy. And hopefully we've got some of them in the, in the audience today. And I'm also joined by our panel members. So we've got uh, Linda, BJ and, and Eloise. So I completed my MBA in 2014 in, in Western Australia and then moved to Hong Kong shortly after that, and I've been in, in Hong Kong since, since 2015. If you're worried, if you're thinking about my background, this isn't actually my office. I'm, we're working from home at the moment due to a, a COVID close contact. I, I don't have COVID, but uh, that's why the, the background might look a bit different to some of the other panel members that, that are about to join. And um, so I'll let them introduce themselves and I'll, I'll start with you, Linda. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Linda. I went to UWA um, in 97 through 2001. I was originally born in China and immigrated to Australia with my family when I was in middle school. Uh, I went to uh, high school in Melville uh, and then uh, completed my degree in engineering finance uh, at UWA. Uh, upon graduation, I moved to Hong Kong and joined Morgan Stanley in investment banking. Uh, and after that, private equity. So I was in Morgan Stanley for about uh, 11, 12 years uh, before I moved on and started uh, KHL Capital with a bunch of exploring colleagues. At KHL Capital, we invest across Asia, uh, mostly in control leverage buyout transactions. Um, and we look at industries uh, across TMT, healthcare, fake consumer, et cetera. So um, I'll hand over to the next panelist. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So over to you, uh, BJ. Do you want to give a, a brief introduction there? You're on mute as well. I'll, I'll catch you before. There you go. <laughs> yes. Hi, everyone. Uh, good to uh, attend the, the, this event. Yeah, uh, as you can see, I'm a retired person and back in Perth at the moment, but uh, all my working day years are all in the region. Uh, my association with uh, UWA was... Uh, had my MBA uh, full time uh, two years, 1988 and 89. And then I also uh, worked in Hong Kong to set up Western Australian government's first office for the Great China region in 1994. 
uh, and then uh, two and a half years later, we relocated the office to Shanghai. That's where I originally come from. And then I've been working there since 1990, late 1996 to my retirement 2020. So I worked for the, uh, most of my time was with uh, Western Australian government, trying to develop uh, the, our economic relationship with the Great China region. And then in the last eight years, I was with a uh, Border School uh, Meta Group, which is a major iron ore mining company. So thank you. Great, thanks, BJ. And then uh, last but not least, Eloise, can you uh, give an introduction for yourself as well? Sure, and thanks for having, having me, Adam and, and UWA. So I grew up in Perth, and then I was a undergrad at UWA doing a law and commerce double degree, graduating in 2008. I then started off my career at Mallison's, which became King and Wood Mallison's, one of um, was an Australian law firm and then became Australian Chinese in Perth. And after about four to five years, I then qualified as a Hong Kong solicitor and relocated to Hong Kong in, in 2013. And I've been with a firm called Stevenson Harwood since then. So Stevenson Harwood is a UK firm originally, but with offices um, in various locations, including Hong Kong. I'm now a partner uh, in that litigation department and I specialise in uh, restructuring and insolvency cases. Great, thanks. So it's a, it's a great, great panel that we've got today and I'm very lucky to, to be here with you. And in terms of the format of the webinar, I can see that there's a few attendees that are joining now. We've got a, a good group of attendees. If there are question and answers along the way or questions you want to ask the panellists or topics that you want to raise, you can raise those using the Q&A button on the, on the bottom of your screen. And we'll try and pick those up as we as we go through the conversation. And if we don't get to them, we'll, we'll try and either look at them at the end or, or answer them after the session. So to, to kick things off, I guess the first one is about the economy. And the economy of Hong Kong is, is a highly developed free market economy. I know it's something that we all enjoy. Um, and so why, why is Hong Kong's economy so successful? And I guess, Linda, for you, why how has KH Capital, KHP Capital been impacted by, by COVID-19? Okay, um, thanks, Adam. I'll, I'll try to share some of my views here and welcome for others to comment. Um, Hong Kong currently ranks fifth in the list of world's most competitive economies, uh, actually improving two spots over improved performance and over the COVID time, which is you know, a little surprising. Uh, you may ask who's, who's the most competitive economy is actually Denmark, followed by um, Switzerland. The most competitive economy in, in Asia is actually Singapore. Now, Hong Kong has a four pillar um, industries, and that's financial services, tourism, trading, and logistics, as well as financial services. Um, they contribute almost half, 50% of the city's GDP. Um, and, um, Oh, and that percentage is climbing. Now, why is Hong Kong so successful and what's its uniqueness? I think, uh, firstly, it's a free market economy and it's on the back of the rise of a giant Chinese economy and the rapid developing and growing businesses within that. Uh, thanks to Hong Kong's free ruling business culture and fairly independent judiciary, Hong Kong became a kind of an East meets West boiling spot. Um, you know, with talents and capital around the world, attracted by its highly efficient transport and logistics systems. You know, everyone knows about Hong Kong's 
MTR systems compared to you know, London's tube uh, or, or the railways in the US. So um, it's an international trading port at a financial center where business all over the world would come and set up offices. You know, Hong Kong's brightness shone even more after China embarked on the path of economic reform at the beginning of the century. You know, we all remember when Hong Kong joined the WTO uh, in the early 2000s, when I first started working. I think that was the beginning of a wave of globalization, which provided the engine of growth for China, as well as its surrounding economies. And Hong Kong especially benefited a lot uh, on that path. Um, you know, um, in 1995, two years before Hong Kong returned to China's sovereignty, um, that was when China's top began on joining the WTO. Now, after it became a member in late 2001, uh, that was, you know, surrounding cities Shenzhen and Shanghai, um, gave foreign businesses direct access to, to the giant economy and the labor pools. So, um, in a way, Hong Kong started to have competitors, you know, Shenzhen and Shanghai, uh, but it also still offered kind of unprecedented opportunities to foreigners eager to enter the mainland market. So um, there's a couple of milestones I would like to mention uh, as Hong Kong's economy uh, grew over the last 20, 25 years. Um, the Hong Kong dollar was actually pegged to the US dollar in 1983. That's a very unique characteristic of the Hong Kong's economy. And uh, HKMA, uh, Hong Kong's de facto central bank, uh, uses its kind of buying and selling the currencies to maintain that peg within the band. Um, if you remember, ICBC, uh, China's largest bank, uh, executed an IPO transaction on the Hong Kong stock market in 2006. And that was uh, 22 billion US. So that was the largest deal in the world at the time. And then there's the Shanghai Hong Kong Stock Connect program, which started in 2014. Uh, and then 2017, there was the Bond Connect. And then later this year, it, uh, earlier this year, it was the Wealth Connect program. So all of that helped um, Hong Kong's economy attract, you know, uh, en enable the flow of capital to, to continue to support Hong Kong's capital markets as well as economic growth. So I'll, I'll stop there uh, on the Hong Kong economy, but uh, and turn over to the question on COVID's impact uh, on ourselves. Um, I think first of all, it definitely in, in impacted the way we interact and communicate, uh, whether it's with our clients, our investment portfolio companies, and even within the teams. Uh, I personally, I use, I'm based in Hong Kong and I used to travel every week to Taiwan or to China before COVID, but that hasn't been able to happen for the last you know, two and a half years. Uh, so Zoom has taken over uh, you know, the way of communication. Um, and even I think post COVID when travel restrictions start to lift, I think um, I may not travel every week again. It may be once a month. Uh, so um, the, the, the way we communicate has definitely been impacted and perhaps for the longer term. Now on the portfolio companies and the businesses that we see, uh, there's different degree of impact. Uh, for more domestic businesses, for example, we own the largest uh, cable TV and broadband service provider in Taiwan. 
um, that company hasn't has actually benefited from COVID, to be honest, because people stay home more, they want to watch more TV, and they have a, there's a huge surge demand on quality uh, broadband service. So for domestic focused business like that, uh, they may have benefited. However, for businesses that are export or trading oriented, um, it has been impacted in different degrees, depending on the sector and where you are. Um, and I think there is a catalyst for change. COVID acted as a catalyst for change for a lot of businesses, uh, especially uh, in digital innovation and transformation. You know, a lot of companies probably uh, you know, dragging its foot and waiting to say, oh, I might not have to do this yet. But COVID really kind of put that agenda item on the priority is that you know, we have to get the IT infrastructure upgraded. We have to innovate. We have to make ourselves more digital. Uh, I think we're seeing that across a lot of the businesses. And um, there is a kind of disruption on trade all wrapped into the geopolitical dynamics. Um, especially we see very clearly there is a, connect, a, a push towards Southeast Asia, especially from Taiwan, you know, where the trade flow is going, where the financial or finance flow is going as well. So I think that may continue also uh, post, post COVID. So, I'll stop there and see if others have things to add. I think I think two of the things that, that stood out to me, given that we're currently on a on a webinar, and me personally, I'm sitting in in my room. Um, Digitisation and communication, right? So it, it has really accelerated that. The fact that we're able to do this remotely with quite a large number of attendees joining and, and participating in this in the current situation, I think, is 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 a benefit of that and that acceleration that we've seen. I definitely agree, Adam. I've been um, working on a case with a client in the UK and it's a fraud-related case and the, the party that kind of instigated the fraud is in Hong Kong, so they're involved in, in litigation in Hong Kong. And I think the interesting thing is I would never have met the client otherwise. Um, you know, I only would have spoken to them on the phone because there would be no, there was no need for them to come here. But instead, I've been regularly speaking to them on Zoom and I feel like I know that client a lot better than I would have if I'd just been speaking to them on phone on, on conference calls. So, you know, as much as there's the, the Zoom fatigue, there, there are um, benefits and can, connectivity that comes with it. Yeah, no, I agree, I agree. And I think you also talked quite a bit, Linda, about the, the changing dynamics um, and, and the challenges and the, the opportunities uh, that we can see. And, you know, there's, there's pros and cons of both of those. And I guess that's a good one to segue to you, BJ, given that you were, the WA Trade Commissioner in Hong Kong. You spent some time in Shanghai and China as well, and, and obviously very, very much familiar and spending time with in Western Australia your home. So how do you see the opportunities in Hong Kong today moving forward and moving beyond this? And how do they compare with the times that you were working here as the WA Trade Commissioner? You're on mute, BJ. Sorry. Uh, we got yeah. <laughs> now the uh, actually yeah I think that's a very good question you know the uh, if we were to compare uh, when I was first in Hong Kong uh, in 1994 and then now and I have to say uh, China and Hong Kong has been very important to Western Australia as a market 
I remember the those days were very early days. Try to getting stuff into China. A lot of those are going to Hong Kong. Take for instance, our famous uh, Western Australian lobster. Uh, always telling people in China that if you if you really like Australian lobster, seven out of ten are actually from Western Australia uh, and, and particularly Jared in the Fremantle area. So at that time, we very much rely on Hong Kong as a, a step stone to getting to across from Hong Kong to Shenzhen and then from Shenzhen uh, to the rest of China. Um, the, uh, so Hong Kong has always played a very important role. And also uh, when China was looking at energy, the liquefied natural gas uh, in late 90s, um, people may know well, Western Australia, we're very lucky to be the first supplier of LNG to China. But that deal, including the two Hong Kong buyers, uh, uh, China Light and Power and uh, Hong Kong Gas, uh, the, uh, these two play a very important role to, uh, because most of other Chinese buyers as a group uh, is uh, not as familiar with the, um, the, the Western, uh, you know, the, the contractual and long-term arrangement because uh, our very first deal is still in the middle of operation. Uh, this year is about deal was signed 20 years ago uh, this year, um, but actually start to flow is 206. So Hong Kong initially when natural gas is used for power generation and for your cooking at home is actually initially from Western Australia. Uh, from our very first deal of 3 million tons, again, Hong Kong played a very important role. But today, China is last year uh, is already world the largest import of energy, uh, 18 million tons now. So from the very first, Three million tons start to flow to six. So Hong Kong has always been important to play that role, uh, linking China with the rest of the world. I think that if we were to compare now and then, the most important significance is that uh, at that time, the, uh, the Pearl River Delta region is not as well developed as uh, what we've seen here today. So, uh, so that's why, in some, to some extent, at that time, Hong Kong, if you were to compare with Taiwan, for instance, uh, the, the uh, missed first wave of technology in the early 2000s, that particular period. Uh, Hong Kong doing a lot of trade, but less sort of uh, uh, the, the you know, manufacturing, uh, high tech, those sort of areas. But now, given the basis of Shenzhen, the Great Bay area, I think going forward, Hong Kong has a lot more opportunities uh, to work with mainland Chinese companies in that region and then uh, you know, to grow. In the last 25 years, uh, although the Hong Kong's GDP, uh, the weighting in the whole of mainland China as a group has uh, decreased from something like 18% now to the 3%. Uh, of China's uh, uh, the main GDP, but, but the fact that the China has moved from the number eight largest economy to now the number two, going to the number one, it means it's a huge opportunity. Uh, and also, China's today per capita GDP is still one fifth or one sixth that of Australia. So there's a huge uh, upside uh, for. Uh, so I still. Very confident that Hong Kong, um, if we focus on the economy, uh, less about the politics, leave the politics for 
somebody else to worry about, I think there's a really good chance uh, this time around uh, it can really benefit the, uh, even greatly compared with those days in the 90s. I'll probably stop there. <laughs> no, that's good. That's, 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 a good, that's a good comment, BJ. I think it's, it's an interesting one and, and it's a good point where you focus on the, focus on the economy and the growth and potentially less on, on the politics. Um, there's another focus that comes to mind and, and is a, a topic, a key topic at the moment as well, which is the consideration of, of ESG and sustainability. So we've got a good growth story, but how do we do that in a way that we're not sacrificing the future and we're doing it in, in a sustainable way? And I think that that's a sharing that you recently had, Eloise, which is businesses can thrive, but they can also thrive even more with successful ESG strategies. And so could you, could you share a little bit with us around considerations um, that ESG could play in restructuring or distressed businesses and how businesses in Hong Kong could use that to their advantage? Yeah, thanks, Adam. So as you said, obviously ESG is a hot topic across the globe and, and many businesses are pivoting towards that and seeing ESG strategies as, as you know, one of the key planks in, in helping their, their overall growth strategy. And for an example, I could say my firm recently um, set a five-year plan and, and focused that around five industry sectors. Yeah. And one of those five is, is decarbonisation. So I think, you know, that that's because many businesses are required to implement changes uh, to what the way they operate because of regulatory changes, but also because of investor, financier or broader stake holder expectations and therefore because uh, they're going through changes they often need legal advice to assist the businesses going through um, what could be really transformative changes for some for some businesses so you know for us our strategic alignment you know shows that that there's quite a lot of work to do in that area so hence we have aligned that way so overall you know without that um, you know specific example, I would say, and I don't think it's any surprise to others, that Hong Kong is somewhat lagging behind other jurisdictions, uh, especially if you compare to, to a lot of uh, Europe, and therefore we're more at the start of our ESG journey. Uh, but, you know, I guess the thing about being at the start is there's a lot you can do, um, and therefore lots of opportunities. And I think if you see if in the last couple of weeks, the um, Hong Kong Stock Exchange announced the launch of, of a council, which they're calling the Hong Kong International Carbon Market. So, you know, the collaboration is um, to help try and develop an international carbon market and use Hong Kong's um, financial position as a, as a leading um, global financial centre to, to develop that market and, and re, uh, realise carbon neutral goals and develop green and sustainable fi finance ecosystem in, in Hong Kong and mainland China. Yeah. So... When you think, I guess, kind of go back to your question and how it's relevant for me as someone that's uh, focused on restructuring and insolvency is that businesses in, in financial distress should actually be thinking about um, ESG considerations when they're trying to turn around their financial position. And, you know, one of the reasons is because it might open them up to more avenues uh, for finance, perhaps more sources of finance or cheaper sources of finance uh, when they're looking at, there's a lot of ESG linked lending products now and new green finance products, which, you know, opens you up to, to other financiers, but also potentially uh, 
cheaper finance, but usually to access these, the, the underlying business needs to either maintain what they're doing or uh, sustain their ESG performance and often improve that um, because they'll be linked targets within, you know, whatever lending. So I guess it then has a, a flow-on effect. It might allow them to access more capital, which could help, you know, uh, help their business for, through a difficult time. But, you know, the flow-on effect, which is hopefully better for, you know, the wider society and the environment is that if they're required to make changes to the way they uh, run their business to then access those finance products is hopefully that will have a flow on effects to the, to the wider environment and the society. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's a very good point. And I think we're all also seeing that the, the Hong Kong consumer is becoming very much more ESG conscious, right? So whether or not that's companies prioritizing that as, as a strategic competitive advantage, you know, back in the days when we could still travel, whether it was biofuel and cafe and recycled blankets or, or the banks going much more sustainable, they are using that as a, as a marketing tool as well. So the consumer is becoming much more ESG conscious, which would drive a lot more, more custom, hopefully. Yeah, which I think, as you see, in, in some other countries or jurisdiction, businesses have been forced to change because of uh, regulatory change. Yes. Um, but Hong Kong is generally like a, a low regulation uh, jurisdiction and often changes that have happened here are not driven by the government implementing something which requires business to change, but actually by, um, you know, demand from either customers, stakeholders, whether that be their lenders or creditors or, you know, other people driving change, not just, um, you know, the government saying, yeah, you have to do this. Good. And then as we're, as we're coming out of, of, of COVID, and we've all talked about the, the sort of crisis and the flux, but in times of crisis, it can be, the default approach can be to, to think short term, but still act too slowly and not respond to, to change and crisis quickly enough. Now, I guess, how, how do you think that Hong Kong has uniquely faced the crisis and the pandemic? And do you think that there will be huge long-term impacts? And I think that there's, there's pros and cons on this. I mean, as, as I talked, I think that digitization has accelerated in Hong Kong. I think that organisations that were historically in the office face-to-face -face have enabled remote working. They've enabled staff to work from home. There has been some significant positives that have accelerated. And, and then obviously there's there's been challenges as well along the way. So. I don't know if you want to share a little bit on that, uh, Linda. Sure. Um, I, I think, you know, COVID is all a very personal matter to every one of us because it affects in our, our lives in so many different ways. I think Hong Kong reacted relatively fast and decisively in the early days of COVID when we knew very little about the virus that we're dealing with. And I think that minimized the lives lost and the impact to our societies and disruption to the medical system. However, I think the virus has evolved and you know, this reduction in fatality rate, there's increased um, success with treatment and vaccines, et cetera. I think we ought to continuously review and revise our approach to adapt you know, various measures, you know, including flight, quarantine restrictions. I think they all need to be adapted to, to the, you know, as, as situations change. 
um, longer term impacts, I think, um, as I said, that the outbreak of COVID has forced the rapid adoption of remote working practices and acknowledge the importance of digital transformation, the future of work, the way um, you know, we live our lives, social lives, education, security, et cetera, will all undergo major changes in the aftermath of the COVID uh, virus in the pandemic. Um, I think there's more permanent impacts like business travel, there'll be less business travel for sure. Um, there'll be more communication via Zoom, working from home. Consumer behavior, you know, we used to buy that roll of, you know, toilet roll from a store, we most certainly will order it online and that will not go back even if COVID goes away. Um, food delivery, you know, shopping and food delivery, all the, you know, department store shopping and delivery. Um, and learning behavior, you know, my kids were on Zoom for half the time during COVID. Um, you know, I, I would love to put them to go back to school. I think that cannot be substituted or replaced, but a lot of the after-school activities can now happen online. They can learn their chess online, for example. So I think, you know, homeschooling versus, uh, you know, traditional schooling, I think that that will be impacted and especially extracurriculum activities. There's impact on you know physical retail, you know, because of all of those changing in consumer behaviors, office, retail workspace, rental, you know, all of that. Um, I think you know, a, a couple of examples. There's a startup company called Reef in the US. They're target to create cities where everything people need it is within a short distance of bike ride. You know, similarly, Saudi Arabia is building a hundred mile stretch of smart communities connected without cars or held by digital technologies. So I think there's kind of new ideas on how we're gonna live our lives. And there's also the prediction of ghost kitchens, you know, developing into cloud markets where you can mix and match dishes from a variety of sources and restaurants have them delivered to your home. So I think this is enabled, all these tech startups uh, post the pandemic era have enabled our imagination kind of that we could live differently now. So I think um, Hong Kong's quality of life, low tax rates and you know, continuing opportunities in the greater Bay Area will continue to attract talents. However, I think there's, um, you know, we, we kind of have to figure out a uh, new focus for Hong Kong. You know, where is it going to go from here? Maybe I'll just pause there for a little bit and let others have a chance to, to comment. That's a good, good question. It's a good discussion. I mean, BJ, I guess you've been, you've been in both Oz looking, looking in from the outside, right? What have you, what have you observed? Australia, since I uh, retirement, uh, returned back to Perth uh, two years ago. Uh, yeah. Uh, my first reaction, I would say, because when this thing started uh, in the January, uh, actually, in fact, I was still with Photo School, and uh, in the January, um, actually, the 14th of January 2020, we had a very large uh, gathering in Shanghai, actually, uh, for our official new office opening, Photo uh, School, and we have uh, people, steel mills, because there are no companies, so steel mills around, including. And we actually, you know, people might know that year, the Chinese New Year was, uh, I think, the 24th or 23rd of uh, January, quite early. And uh, uh, I have five, uh, we have uh, six staff actually from Wuhan, five of them end up going back to Wuhan. But we manage very well. And uh, I think the same thing with Hong Kong. 
when I returned to Australia, I would say the one word that frequently people talk about social distancing, you will have to say places like Hong Kong will be very, very difficult for uh, compared with Australia. Right? So certainly Hong Kong has done great. And also Hong Kong play and again, play a very important role for Australia's uh, activities. Um, uh, you might recall at that time, Australia immediately from the late March uh, 2020 start to have Australia wave. And Australia is shot, uh, in serious shortage of PPEs and also testing facilities. And hmm. uh, I remember uh, my last three months uh, with the company is actually focused on sourcing PPEs and, and uh, getting the uh, laboratory setting up in uh, eight capital cities in, uh, in Australia. Actually, yeah. through Hong Kong, it was again, it's a Shenzhen company, BGI, uh, helped Australia to set up. Uh, I think the Hong Kong used that, uh, their uh, lab as well, setting up uh, because Australia just don't have those. So, Hong Kong actually uh, is being very, very close. But I think the, the now, uh, given the last two years, Australia have a, currently facing a serious problem of uh, staffing issue uh, across the whole economy. It's just a in short, I can notice now increasingly in the Chinese restaurant or the Western restaurant here in Western, in Perth, you have AI being used. So instead of, yeah. because you just don't have the, uh, you know, people to serve you, they will have a machine with your order, you order online and then they come over across to your table with the food. And, and uh, I noticed also one of the Australian companies uh, actually with links with China, uh, they are also uh, working on uh, how to cook this uh, Western food or Chinese food using machine, basically. So to reduce the, so I think the um, you have a pros and cons. There's a, uh, the the uh, COVID has through a lot of challenges to uh, to us, but at the same time, lots of new business opportunity uh, come up uh, as a result of that. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point on the AI. Um, a little bit closer to home, but the last time I was in Steve's bar around the corner from our, our university, um, I ordered my beer there, scanning a barcode on the table, and they they bought it out. So it is it is getting traction <laughs> everywhere, BJ. Yeah. So next time, if you are back in Perth, you will see more more popular. Some of the restaurants will start using those things uh, to serve you rather than have a previous human. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but I think, um, I guess, talking about the the um, staff shortage in in different um, sectors in Australia, and I think obviously in, in hospitality has been huge because so many people uh, lost jobs um, during during COVID and, and obviously went elsewhere and can't be attracted back into the industry. But I think that also kind of focuses on, on the brain drain we have in Hong Kong um, and something which could be you know, a, a long-term impact for Hong Kong uh, because of, you know, the quarantine and, and all the restrictions and life has got a lot diff more difficult here and, you know, kids being at school online and, and parents not knowing if that's what they want for their families. I do think that there has been a lot of people leave and I'm sure um, Adam and Linda, you, you've had friends leave, I'm sure many of our attendees as well, and whether that... Um, you know, is going to continue on? Uh, are those people, you know, have they relocated permanently? Are we going to be able to attract that high quality um, talent to, to Hong Kong and whether that be expatriates and also Hong Kong people? And I think 
it's it's been a difficult time for Hong Kong because of the government's response to to COVID. But I think also that coming at the same time as we have, you know, a lot of nervous nervousness following the implementation of of the national security law and and people deciding to to leave Hong Kong and and what does that see for for the long term future? Yeah. I mean, I, I won't put words in his mouth, but I think BJ's rather optimistic from his experience he had in Hong Kong around, um, you know, the pre-1997 times. I'm not sure if you could speak to that. Yeah, I was going to uh, respond to that. I think uh, I'm confident if, uh, that it's all dependent on mainland China. If the Chinese economy will continue, there's no reason not to believe the so, then we might see a repeat. His, his, uh, history repeat itself because I remember uh, just when it was getting close to 1997, there were a lot of people, family, migrant, uh, because one of my work then was also to promote business migration uh, to uh, Western Australia. So we see a lot of people coming and leaving uh, Hong Kong, uh, worry about 1997. And then I noticed also that uh, a few years later, not too long later, uh, particularly after both Hong Kong and the Ch mainland China uh, become a member of w, uh, WTO, where the China mainland China's economy really start to pick up, and a lot of people coming back because that's where the activity is. So, given what happened in the last couple of years, particularly since uh, 2019 in Hong Kong, I'm sure there's a lot of concern. Uh, the uh, so that you might see a plus COVID. You might see another wave. By the way, Western Australia, if I can wear my former hat on, uh, I noticed our premier just recently traveled to Italy and uh, uh, Europe, and Germany, and uh, Deborah Premier as well. All one central thing is trying to attract talents or, or um, uh, technical staff uh, for Western Australia because Western Australia is just in serious shortage of uh, all our mining companies. Uh, you can see all their ads and uh, you know they're in short of stuff, engineers, everything. So I think on the one hand is that, on the other is I think if the economy of mainland China continue now, given the Great Bay Area and the policy the Beijing, and the now Hong Kong has a new government uh, uh, and if it's stabilization and economic prospect, uh, I think that they might repeat. Uh, that's my prediction and a few years later. A few years later, some of these people will again come back to Hong Kong. It is actually, uh, I also had uh, in the mid 90s, there was a train in Taiwan as well. Because at that time, I remember uh, the, uh, there was uh, uh, a specific uh, policy uh, in the early 90s. Uh, the the uh, push the Taiwanese companies to go south. They say going south policy. And then came the 1997. The Asia financial crisis and the Taiwanese, uh, the, the Ministry of Economic Affairs has to rescue those uh, companies and then those uh, develop themselves in um, mainland China and all become very, very successful until today. So now, so it's uh, it's quite interesting. So people need to, I can uh, appreciate the, the people's reservation and concern seeing what's going on. And uh, they might, if there is an opportunity, they will uh, certainly Australia welcome uh, the people from Hong Kong and, uh, and uh, particularly graduates from UWA, I'm sure. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, and over long term, the, the uh, people will still go to where 
they think give them the best uh, opportunities. Yeah, that's 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 a I think that's a good point. Um, and it's a good segue into our, our next question. But before I do that, I'll just remind the, the attendees if they've got any questions to ask the, the panelists or anything that they want to share, please do feel free to do that. It's a it's an open discussion and we're all happy to, to invite questions from the audience as well. Um, but I guess one of the things that you talked about, Eloise, and then you built on BJ was around the, the shortage of, of people and, and skilled labour where we need them to be. The other thing that we're noticing in our supply chains is the disruption of, of trade, right? So just shortage of, of things as well as people. Um, it's a more complex supply chain. Moving things around is more difficult, impacted by reduced flights, geopolitical tensions, various other, other things. Hong Kong's always benefited of being a hub that people pass through. It's always been easy to get things in and out. Um, how, how do you think Hong Kong will adapt and, and what's next for us? Do you think that competitive advantage that we had in the past is, is enough to carry us forward? I think the Hong Kong uh, will continue to play that role. It's, it's a Hong Kong's uh, unique position. Uh, you know, I noticed uh, the, the, for many years, Hong Kong is sort of competing uh, with Taiwan and always Singapore to some extent, but the location, actually strategic location of Hong Kong, uh, there's no match with the other two destinations. So certainly Hong Kong uh, has that. Um, uh, uh, the, as for the supply chain, I just, uh, as I often said here in Australia, we need to be very cautious. Uh, the, this current supply chain, some uh, because like more, more, more recently, supply chain issues uh, caused by geopolitical situation in uh, Ukraine and all those Europe, but previously was COVID. But COVID one, uh, it needs to be very, very careful because I'll give you a live example. When the uh, COVID first started, everybody is chasing for masks. Australia is short of masks. So uh, actually there are some businesses start to, with the government support, strong support, and start the uh, production very quickly. And very soon, when the China started, the mainland China initially, when COVID started, that can only produce about 2 million masks a day. And a month or two later, start to produce 200 million masks a day. Immediately, you know, so now you see all these are again back to made in China. The, the, the rat test, for instance, again, is mostly supplied from China and some Korea. And so, you, as a business, Yes, you've got to recognize the supply chain challenges, but if uh, for uh, an investment, uh, you just need to be see if it is a short-term thing or it is a, is a long-term. And I really hope this COVID or geopolitical both should not work together to stop the economic globalization because we all benefit, particularly Australia, has benefited hugely from the economic globalization and that should not stop. Do you think, BJ, it's more of a case that uh, businesses will like diversify, um, you know, where their supply chain was rather than, and whether that's in countries where you can have part of it done domestically and part of it internationally. So, you know, all the eggs aren't in one basket when something unpredictable like COVID happens again. Yeah, I think it's important business. We should trust, in Australia, I always say to people that we should, with the government particularly, I say we should trust our businesses. They know where, uh, 
because when we, uh, one thing I remember very clearly with my MBA course is the, uh, uh, the risk associated with a new investment. The, uh, uh, so the, the market risk is certainly, whether it be from supply point of view as for uh, the, the uh, demand point of view, is a, uh, is a clear risk. But business knows how to um, the maximize uh, the, uh, and the balance the risk and the benefit and make a sound business uh, the decisions. So I think that if there is a need and there is a competitive edge for something, we should do that. Uh, at the moment, I think Australia is spending now uh, with the new government, uh, certainly we are going, going, coming back to this, uh, the, 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 uh, the environmental and the sustainable development. And there's a huge opportunities in the clean um, technology. Again, uh, it provides a huge potential for Australia and working with China on the, uh, whether it be solar, whether it be wing. And uh, of course, we also noticed that Australia uh, is working also uh, with other uh, developed world on those uh, fronts as well. As long as it makes business sense, uh, you certainly do it, but don't do it just for the sake of doing it. That would be my view. <laughs> I think, look, I think it's it's a really interesting um, question otherwise, and I, I work in commercial and supply chain for it, it, a lot of my business. And we, we used to have this saying where we'd say, don't don't buy things just in case, buy them just in time. And um, we, we do a lot of shifting inventory out of warehouses and, and having vendor managing inventory shipped to us and move to us much more quickly. And we are seeing a shift, as you said, to a, a hybrid model now. So a little bit of just in case. Um, and then a whole lot of just in time, if that makes sense, so that we can respond more quickly to these disruptions. Because the other thing to remember is, it's easy to say it's COVID, but you know we had the we had some transport issues around social unrest. Then we had COVID. Now we've got war in Ukraine, and you've got geopolitical these these supply chain and trade issues. I think will continue because we are moving into a more complex set of supply chains now. Actually, I I have. Uh... Interesting example, I won't name the company, uh, one can't name the project. During the COVID, uh, one of the mining companies here in Western Australia, actually, uh, they actually started the construction uh, before the, uh, the COVID started. And uh, they actually sourced a lot of the mining major because the nature of uh, the mining industry in Western Australia is such a huge, uh, uh, they, they actually, well, their previous uh, equipment supply is from Europe and North America. But the COVID sets in and there's a lot of investment overrun because they can't supply, days delay. Uh, I actually said to them, if you were to initially, those stuff was, uh, of course, China can supply as well, but probably uh, they might be at least been seen as not as good or, or quality as those. But at least if you were to originally supply from China, probably things will be different. So there are two, uh, two sides of this supply chain challenges. Uh, but Australia, uh, one thing in particularly in Australia, I'm very much conscious of is uh, we, we should not because of uh, these two factors going back to uh, 1980s when Australia is even producing everything, trying to produce everything with the uh, tariff protection, 
and, uh, and try to produce everything ourselves. That will be the end of the economic globalization. Okay, so we're all here, obviously, through our, our connection to, to the University of Western Australia, um, as well as other connections we found out, you know, Linda went to Melville High School, my sister went to Melville High School, BJ was at Fortescue, and, and I was at Fortescue, even though our times didn't, didn't overlap. So we've all got some connections, and I'm sure that there's, there's many more if we were to, to dig into them. But if you were to go back to, to your first day at, at UWA when you were starting out on, on this journey, uh, what's what's the one piece of advice that you would you would give to yourself as you were as you were starting out? So should we start with you, Linda? What would you what would you tell Linda on her first day? Yeah, you know, as Adam was saying that, I was just imagining let my memory flash back to that first day when I stepped into UWA's green lawn. Um, I, I think my biggest takeaway is probably more of a life lesson that learning will never stop. You know, that day at university will just probably be the first day of the many days in your life that you continue learning. Um, and I would suggest that you start bra and develop your area, your thing, you know, find out what is, it, what is it that you're really interested in that you're really good at. And those two are likely to go head in hand um, and develop your story. And in terms of career path, I would, um, say that you should probably start at somewhere that's an established platform where it can provide the right in-house expertise, knowledge, clients, team, everything to learn from uh, and go from there. But last and not least, uh, enjoy your time at university. It's probably the best time of your life. Go make lots of friends and enjoy. Yeah, no, that's a, that's, I think that's a great, great piece of advice and a good, good reflection as well, Linda. Yourself, well, Linda referred to the nice green grass, and I would also say um, appreciate that green grass. If you end up in Hong Kong, you don't have as much <laughs> of it available to you. And yeah, that's fair. That's I think fair. My, my, my one and a half year old runs around on the fake AstroTurf and would have no idea what it's like to walk around on real grass. So, you know, the campus of UWA was just, you know, stunning. And I don't think we realised how lucky um, how lucky we were to... to to have such a beautiful, beautiful campus um, yeah. there for us all, all to enjoy. And I guess beyond that, and probably what you're saying, Adam, about the different connections you have, I would say to day one LOEs, like go outside your comfort zone, try and meet new people and, and make more friends. And, you know, I, I, I did when I was at university, but I think I, I had a lot of friends from my school that went there as well. So it was easy for me to kind of stay a bit within that, that click. But when I did other things um, for example I was really involved with the uh, Unicamp for Kids charity and and that's some of my best memories of of uh, my time at UWA and then that's what allowed me to to make other friends and and you know forge those connections and the connections you make at any at any point of study in your in your life I think sometimes are more valuable than the actual technical knowledge you learn along the way yeah I think I'm for mine, I'd, I'd agree and, and kind of ride on that a little bit, which is when, when I did my MBA, we built good relationships and networks within our, our cohort, but we didn't go much further than that. Um, and it was, you know, you're very busy at the time when you're doing it as well. So you're very focused on, on the educational aspects and potentially to do more of that networking. And it's something that 
And look, I am selling it now. But it's something that moving to Hong Kong was great with the Hong Kong alumni network here um, that I've been very fortunate to make friends and network outside of Perth because of UWA as well. So I would, the advice that I'd give to, to myself back then and still give to myself now when I'm feeling a bit lazy um, is, is to continue to reach out, to use that network and to, to get involved in some of the events because they are very good and there's a good network of people here. What about yourself, BJ? Um, apart from all you have said, uh, only one thing to add, I think enjoy the facilities. Uh, I still yeah. very strong, uh, I, I'm not sure now, when I'm doing my MBA, each one of us, uh, two of us will share a one room within the library itself. Uh, it was so good facility. You can get in as many books you want uh, uh, the, and put in your little room and then uh, enjoy reading it uh, uh, throughout the day. It was uh, really, really, um, I never imagined, I mean, in a university of the size, uh, you'll be able to do, I'm not sure now still with the, I remember our, our group, um, the, the uh, start of our particular uh, 1988 uh, batch uh, two year, full time at that time, uh, is about 130 of us. Uh, when we, uh, some people take a bit longer to finish. Uh, so when we actually 1990, uh, early 1990 for the graduation of that particular uh, class, we had about uh, 33 or 35 uh, of us uh, uh, the, the, uh, graduate. So it's, uh, it's quite uh, actually a competitive uh, process. Uh, I always remember one Singaporean uh, entrepreneur uh, who had about uh, two months with us, and he then he come and he left the program. He's a very successful entrepreneur. He said he didn't expect MBA was that tough, so he decided to traveling around Australia with his own <laughs> car, yeah. and yeah, that's, that's his uh, MBA try. So it's it's. It's a tough, but it's a very enjoyable. And uh, university has got not only the, the best campus of the 38 university in Australia, uh, certainly has a very, very good uh, facilities there. No, I'd certainly, certainly agree with that. Um, so before I hand it back over, are there any last closing comments or questions from, from the audience or the panel? No? Okay, good. Oh, Oh, Adam, I was just going to say, um, you know, th thanks, thanks for inviting us to be part of this. And I think um, it's been a good uh, opportunity to also maybe reframe some of our attitudes about um, Hong Kong, because, you know, it has been it has been a bit of a tough time living here and, and reading the news. And it, it, it's been really good to think about um, positives and growth and, and what's to come in the future. Um, so hopefully that this is signs of what's to come. Yeah, we've just had one question appear um, and I'll, I'll, I'll read that and um, I'll let the panel members address it. But there's a bit of positivity amidst the straight COVID measures in this part of the world where we are working and doing business related in China. Trade figures in May 2022 show that traditional industry, industrial countries like Germany, Japan, South Korea and new players like India and Vietnam all suffer trade deficit while China has recorded surplus. This may partially be due to the fact that these other industry, industri industrious nations' productivity has been negatively affected by the number of people who contracted the virus. History tells us that things will one day be over. 
So for those who are now in healthy, oh, so now in Hong Kong, stay healthy and cheers. Oh, so that wasn't a question. It was just, well, which is for the audience. Thank you. All right, that's made my day easier. I thought, oh, someone's going to have to answer this, but no, it's just, uh, it's just well wishing and positivity. So that's that's positive. And I think on that note, happy to to hand back over to uh, happy to hand back over to Kieran. Thanks, Adam, and a huge thanks you know, to yourself, BJ, Linda, and Eloise for taking the time to to share with us today your insights. It's been a really great conversation and discussion. So thank you um, very much from from um, everyone for that. I'm sure there's lots of virtual claps happening in the background for you today. Um, so that wraps up our time together. Thanks everyone for joining. Um, don't forget to update your details with us so we can make sure we keep you connected with the latest uh, research events and things that are happening at UWA. Um, and we look forward to welcoming you to another event soon. Thanks and have a great day. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.